So, backstory uh, was going to preach on, am going to preach on Matthew chapter 21 because it's Palm Sunday. Um, thought it would be, Pete and I talked about it uh, quite a while ago. We've been in this prayer series and we were thinking, how do we transition to Easter? And thought, you know what? It would just be fun to talk about Palm Sunday. Uh, Jesus riding in on a donkey. It's kind of a cool picture. I'd love to maybe just do a spin on that because uh, it's sometimes kind of a bit cornball. We have the, the theatrics in our mind, you know, of, of, of dressing up and doing church kind of plays. And, and maybe we can just kind of redo that and, and take it out of pageantry and, and bring it back to this kind of subversive level. So I was kind of going, and Pete and I were both going with this kind of subversive track, this Walter Brueggemann prophetic imagination, this this idea of, of Jesus always flipping things upside down and having this, this really strong subversive element. And, and you notice kind of subversive's the driving thing here, right? Subversive feels cool. It kind of feels naughty. It kind of feels fun, right? Like it, it feels like I get to be a teenager again. Like let's talk subversive language, you know? And so that's kind of what was drawing me back to this passage and uh, sounded fun. Um, so I came to it, and I've been sitting in it, um, and this is what the whole chapter says. So I'm going to take you on a quick spin of this whole chapter so that you can get not just what Jesus riding in on a donkey is, but what happens the rest of that day. So chapter 21, as they approach Jerusalem, uh, and, and feel free to read along with me. I'm reading out of the NIV. But as they approached Jerusalem and came to Beth, um, Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes uh, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples did as they were instructed. They found this, they brought it back, put their cloaks on it. A, a large crowd gathers. They all cut branches, spread them out on the road. Um, and as the crowds went before Jesus, they were shouting Hosanna, which means to, to save. Uh, the savior here, the son of David, the one who comes to save. Blessed who, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So let me just show you a picture of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So uh, this is modern day Jerusalem. This is kind of the, uh, the, the village. This is a Palestinian village on the east side of Jerusalem. So with the, the recent stabbings, this little viewpoint uh, at different times you, you wouldn't be able to get to. It's, it's where a lot of kind of strong, um, uh, I, I mean, there's a whole political thing going on here with, with uh, the Arabs in East Jerusalem and um, the, Isra uh, the Israelis that are trying to slowly encroach in their neighborhoods. So a lot of tension, but on different days when it's calm, you can get to this viewpoint. There's a lot of, uh, of burial kind of mausoleums, that whole kind of bottom part that looks uh, sand color. It's all stone and rock and, and grave markers, basically. So it's what would have been all olive trees at one point is really all kind of burial ground. But this is the Kidron Valley between the Mount of Olives and where the Temple Mount is. 
So the Dome of the Rock is right in the middle there. If you see another dome all the way to the left of the picture with, with a, it's a gray dome. I don't know if you can see it right on the top part of where the wall is. Um, that's the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, if you want to be specific, all of that area is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, but, but uh, many will just call that one building the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, you can actually go up on top of the Temple Mount and visit, not if you're an Israeli, but if you're an American. Uh, you can go, you can walk around. I've been up there. It's, it's, it's an, an amazing experience. Um, but so Jesus would have come from behind us, would have come to the left of this picture, uh, down through the olive groves, the Mount of Olives, uh, kind of past the Kidron Valley, and right to the middle of the, the left side of the picture, and entered, most likely entered in from those gates there into the temple area. And so he would have been coming on the, the pilgrim road that people not from Jerusalem would have been using to come up um, through the Jordan Valley, past Jericho, up to Jerusalem, from way below sea level, up to Jerusalem, to, uh, to stay in Bethany, that's just behind us, a little village kind of where you would stay if you were uh, bypassing or, or kind of on your way to Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus goes back to Bethany after he enters Jerusalem. So he's there all week. He comes in here, uh, is crucified on Friday, but during the week, he stays in Bethany. And, uh, but on, on this particular day, he makes his entrance. And so the people that are going before him are what kind of people? The crowds that are going before him and celebrating him are, are by and large the people that are camped out, the people that have come up for the Passover, uh, for this, this annual celebration, this huge holiday. And what are they celebrating when they come up for the Passover? I refuse to go on. Unless somebody talks. Passover. What, what happened at the Passover? Angel of death passed over, but ultimately what was God doing with that miracle? What? He was freeing his people from the tyranny, the slavery under the Egyptians and, and leading them out, rescuing them, saving them. Okay, so it's this geopolitical historical act that the Jews are celebrating. And as they're celebrating this geopolitical historical act uh, that they've grown up hearing about, they're at this point in time under Roman occupation, Roman oppression. Just to, if you go forward from the, the just behind basically, where the gold dome is, is the, um, is the tower the Antonia Fortress, a part of the complex where there would have been garrisoned an extra amount of Roman soldiers. So uh, Pontius Pilate, who ruled this area, prefect of this area, his city where he set up his government was in Caesarea Maritima. It's on the sea. You can still see the ruins there today. It's an amazing place to go visit. But every year when the Passover would happen, he would come and he would reside right smack in the middle of Jerusalem with extra soldiers. Why? Why? Shout it out. To keep the peace. In the world today, if you go to Hindu countries or Muslim countries or Jewish countries, Jewish country, um, 
Christian countries, when, when there's the significant religious holiday is when the crowds are most apt to become very animated um, and, and or violent, right? It's, it's when they all come together and are, are feeding on the religious energy that they have and, and have an issue, especially if they have an issue, with some kind of a, of a presence in their midst that they don't feel is something that ought to be there for religious reasons, that group that's there to worship or celebrate can quickly turn into a revolt, a rebellion, a mob, or a riot. Does that make sense? And so there had been a number of these in Jerusalem, usually around the Passover. And so the prefect would come and they would, they would set themselves up there with a strong military presence for the purpose of making, uh, making sure that there was no dissent, nobody trying to stir up trouble, nothing like that's going on, okay? So you've got the normal people living in the old city, which is basically kind of the area in that picture. Those are the people that live in Jerusalem, that, that own homes in Jerusalem, do business in Jerusalem. You've got the pilgrims coming in as the town swells in size. They're coming up from behind us, camping all around, staying with relatives, and Jesus is going into Jerusalem on this particular day, and there are crowds before him. They are the kinds of people that know of, of Jesus, maybe have been healed by Jesus, have a friend that's heard of Jesus or been healed by Jesus. They're basically from the area of Galilee or other parts of Israel. They're not, they're not the Jeru uh, Jerusalem-specific people. They're certainly not the leaders of Jerusalem. They're not... The, the leaders of Jerusalem aren't coming out, joining Jesus on the road as he comes up and then, and then kind of celebrating his entry into Jerusalem. So that's the crowd that's cheering for Jesus. The country folk, the poor, the, the, the normal people, uh, the, the commoners, if you will, the, the herdsmen, the people from the north. These are the people that are cheering for Jesus. Does that make sense? It's important, why? Because when, when they're standing in front of Pontius Pilate, later on in the interior of the old city and Pontius Pilate is asking people, what should we do with them? And they start yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Is it the same group of people? Come on, I've slept two hours. You guys are sleepier than I am. Um, same group of people? No. That's why you don't answer, because you're afraid you're going to do that, right? <laughs> it's not the same group of people. The people that yell, crucify him, crucify him, are the people that, that weren't um, celebrating Jesus' entrance. They were the people that felt threatened by it. So the people that yell, crucify him, are the Jerusalemites, the people in power, the people that live there, the people that can gain entrance to the court of Pontius Pilate, which, by the way, would be to the right of the Dome of the Rock there. Um, and it's still one of the oldest churches in existence. You can go to right where the courtyard was that this happened, um, which, is a, which is an eerie, eerie, very eerie feeling. We don't have a, a sense of history in, in America that goes this far back. Um, it's important, I think, sometimes to go to these places and go, this is real. These aren't just stories that I learned in Sunday school. Um, but so these are not the same people. So oftentimes when I would hear people growing up, they would talk about the fickleness of the crowd. They celebrate them on one day, and then a couple days later, they're yelling, crucify them. It's different people, okay? So this is Jesus entering Jerusalem, 
they're shouting, uh, they're shouting. And uh, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? The whole city, meaning not the people from the, the countryside that are coming in with Jesus. So the people in the city already are going, who's this? The crowds, the people from the countryside answer, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. All right, now we leave Jesus meek and mild. So when I was coming to this passage, I was like, oh, this will be fun. Jesus meek and mild on, on the back of the donkey. So subversive. Um, and then all of a sudden, I, I, I just kept reading the whole chapter over and over, and, it, and it, it really messed with me. Jesus gets off the donkey. He enters the temple courts, and he drives out those who are buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it, excuse me, you are making it a den of robbers. So in that temple area, you would have had the, the old temple um, that, that would have been uh, the one that King Herod built, but that whole temple area would have been just filled with pilgrims that were coming to, to, to present offerings and to get close to God. Okay, present offerings, why? Because blood cleanses so that you can be a little bit clean so that you could come closer to a, a holy, which means clean or set apart to a holy God. And since you had to travel a long way, you, it's hard to travel with, with sheep uh, or a lamb, which is what you would want to offer if you were poor, a dove. And so it would be hard to travel with these things. So what you would do is you would bring money and you would purchase those things so that you could make a sacrifice. So this began to be a big industry as you're serving the tourists, if you will. You ever been to a tourist spot? Go to any cool place in the world today and it's not like it once was when it was cool. It's now a tourist spot. You go to the Great Wall of China and it's, it's the whole way up, it's tourist stuff. The whole way down, it's tourist stuff. You go to somewhere in, in uh, the heart of Africa on safari and, and it's tourist stuff the whole way up, tourist stuff the whole way back, and it's the exact same stuff made in China, which is crazy, right? But so any cool spot in the world, it's, it's tourist stuff as people are making money on the pilgrims that are coming, Okay. Um, because pilgrims need food, pilgrims need the things they're gonna, they're gonna do. You're gonna throw a, a coin in the Trevi Fountain, you gotta go get a coin. You know what I'm saying? You gotta do the things that you've come to do. So this whole area becomes kind of an economically charged area. And so it spills out into the outer rings of, of that temple complex. And that's a really interesting thing because the outer rings were, were reserved for the Gentiles meaning that there was provision, even in the building of the, uh, the Jerusalem temple for the Jews, there was a provision that this house would be a house of prayer. In other words, a way to commune with God or get close to God for all people, even the people that weren't Jews or Israelites, that, that everyone would be able to come and get closer to God and find God. But now we're pushing out the outsider because they don't really have a political voice because the people that are making decisions um, are not Gentiles. They're not who we care about. They're the marginalized in this picture. We're gonna spill out into that area and we're gonna fill this whole place with things that people can buy, um, doves with with ways of changing money, ways of getting sheep, and it's gonna be business. So Jesus gets off the donkey 
and, and just think of how full that temple complex is. And now he runs through it, flipping over tables with money on them. Um, money changers is like, you know, just think of the currency exchange when you're going to a place in, in the airport or Rome or something like that. And you're going to get euros and you're going to trade in this and you're going to weigh out different kinds of types of coin and things like that. He's flipping these, these tables over. He's driving out animals. He's flipping over benches that people are sitting on. Um, he's not doing that. He's not able to accomplish this out of his niceness. I've been in crowded airports. I've been in crowded uh, bazaars. I've been in crowded train stations. I've been in crowded anywhere. Um, and you don't get anyone in a crowd to move out of your niceness. Just go to really, really crowded cities in the world like Tokyo or Hong Kong and you realize real quickly that everyone in that culture knows how to push when it, when it comes to a train or something because you don't get on the train through your niceness. Does that make sense? Are you following me? Are you with me? So how did Jesus accomplish what he does by causing this uproar as he moves his way through the temple? He didn't give instructions to a bunch of people to create a riot, okay? He didn't unleash the disciples to, to run roughshod through the temple courts. That probably would have gotten them killed by, by the soldiers or certainly arrested. Um, he himself, as a crazed a uh, very focused man uh, single-handedly upset the, the, the goings-on of the temple complex. Not out of his niceness. So I want you to picture it a little bit more. It's dusty. It's hot. Um, Jesus is, is having to raise his voice you, you don't get really animated and focused that you're going to drive things out and, and, and do it whispering. Hey, I don't know why, like, it's house of prayer for the Gentiles. Come on, man. Don't you know what God says? Like, you don't do it with a whisper. You also don't do it by, um, by shouting alone without any body language, right? We know this from cheering. Watch anyone cheer. If you're, gonna, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna be animated, it has to involve body language, right? You don't go in and go, hey man, flip that table over. I said flip it over. That table should go over. Move that bench. Get those animals out of here. Let those birds fly. Like you just can't, you can't do it. So Jesus is in this dusty, hot, crowded place. He accomplishes basically like, 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 a, like a sheep dog with, with like cattle or sheep, I guess. <laughs> like he drives people. He's getting sweaty. He's human after all. This, this man that came riding on a donkey in humility gets off the donkey and, and goes crazy in the temple. And, uh, and he says, you've made this a den of robbers. Interesting thing, what, what are the people really doing? There's a lot of people 
men, women. There's a lot of people that are trying to provide for their families that are like, I didn't create this system. Like I wasn't the one that first set up shop in the Gentile kind of area of the, of, of the temple. I wasn't the first one. I mean, it's supply and demand. There's a lot of people that come, they need things. I live local here. I'm able to make money, provide for my family. I make good money at the Passover, kind of like shopkeepers do in the States at Christmas. Like it's supply and demand. Like I'm not a bad person. Can you imagine? Like Jesus is, is not singling out evil people. He's, he's attacking the economic system broad-based. You and me, maybe. And so then we, we leave this. Jesus leaves them. He goes to the city of Bethany, back over the hill. So he does his thing, goes back over the hill to Bethany. He spends the night. Early in the morning, as, as he was on his way back to the city, he's hungry. Jesus was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the side of the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he says to it, may you never bear fruit again. Probably with body language, again. Immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And they replied to Jesus, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Okay, two things. Um, Jesus is, uh, he curses a fig tree. Like he just curses it. Um, I mean, what do you, when you're one of the disciples, like, are you just like, wow, cool? Like, or are you a bit scared? Like, man, Jesus is having a bad week. <laughs> like, I mean, are you kind of shrinking back? Is it like um, the hobbits with Gandalf when Gandalf gets mad? You know, like, I mean, really what's going on here? And then we always rip this passage just right out. Like, ooh, if you have faith, small as a, as a mustard seed, as small as a mustard seed brothers and sisters in Christ. This big, not that big. It's the smallest known seed in Jesus's day. That big, not very big. But if you have that faith, you can, can take a mountain and throw it into the sea. So say to your cancer, be gone. Say to your checkbook, be filled. Say, <laughs> Say to your singleness, vanish. Like, like we, 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 we so magicianize this. So here's the picture. If you go to the, the oh, oh, go back real quick. So if you go to the, her name is Natalie Poles, people. She's, her name is Natalie Poles. She's back there doing the slides, doing a phenomenal job. She'll be here next week. Um, you can find her. Uh, by the way, Natalie does photography. Do you guys know how many amazing photographers we have in this church? Nobody in this church should have bad family pictures. <laughs> bad family pictures should be, be banished from this congregation. There are so many good photographers in this, in this church. If you don't know any of them, uh, ask me. I'll let you know all their names, but, but we're blessed with photography here. Um, 
So, so to the left, so if you go to an angle, so like if you go to 10 o'clock, off 15 miles, 10 o'clock, you run into Bethlehem, okay? Where David was born, uh, the city of David, it's, it's, in, uh, it's part of the West Bank. It's, it's an Arab town, uh, Palestinian town. Um, there's a wall between it and Jerusalem, which is really, really crazy. One of the craziest things I ever saw was a nativity scene with, with the Israeli occupation wall like as a backdrop to the nativity. Highly political. I'm not going to get into the politics, but just think kind of, just think how interesting some of this stuff is, right? So if you go 15 miles to 10 o'clock, Bethlehem, if you go to 9 o'clock, uh, about a little bit more, 20 miles, there's uh, ish, there's a, a hill, so we can show you the hill. This is called the Herodium, um, and the Herodium Palace was on top of this hill. The next picture. Um, I was nice to you. Uh, this is the Herodium, and, uh, and the Herodium is a man-made hill. So King Herod, remember King Herod, the guy that built the temple that Jesus is coming to? Same King Herod, he built a lot of stuff. Herod took a couple thousand slaves and he built this hill and then put a, a palace on top of it. Why, does anybody know? Anybody been there? Shout it out if you know. What was that? What? No. Um, what? So that he could see the temple from that palace. So this particular hill was built high enough so that he could see over, remember Jerusalem's high, so that he could kind of see over enough stuff and he could get a view of the temple that he built, okay? So he built this mountain, put a, put a palace on it. There's archeological digs up at the top of it and, and he could have a view of, of his temple. So a lot of people, when they read this passage and Jesus is here where, where Herod has built all these things and Jesus is saying, look, faith as small as a mustard seed gives you not power of a thousand slaves, but it gives you access to greater power and potential than Herod himself had. You can literally move a mountain. You can literally move a mountain. I, I do these miracles by the power of God that, that, that comes through faith. When people come up to me and, and they want healing for their daughter, I, I say to them, do you believe? And they say, yes, they believe. And I say, what great faith. And then their kid is healed because faith gives you access to the power of God. And the power of God is greater than nature, just like I calm storms. And, and the power of the king, the true king, the king of kings, my, my power, it's greater than King Herod. And, and this amount of faith is greater than, than all of what you could do if you were King Herod himself. And you can say to this mountain, move and go over there. And, and I, I don't think that Jesus is talking about magic Harry Potter stuff. Wave the wand. I think Jesus is talking about revolutionary stuff. 
And he's saying, you with the smallest seed can accomplish the greatest things. You with a couple people at Antioch can start a church that's really large for, for a town this size and give money to the school district and reach out to children and, and do other ministries that help, help kind of connect this community and, and go to different aspects of it and, and, and nurture so that this town is somehow in small, uh, a small way different than it was before this church was here. And not only that, but you can do different things, start colleges and start justice conferences or start businesses or, or, or medical uh, vans and clinics or other, I mean, all sorts of different things. People in this, uh, this church have started app, um, applications for iPhones that, that uh, as you do commerce, help build money for nonprofits, people that have been here and had to move for economic reasons or, or jobs take them elsewhere. I mean, I, if I had a list, I could just read down through it. But things that, that start small because you believe that we can live a different kind of life can lead to very great things. I think that we're a little bit more in that realm. And Jesus is saying this, and he's saying something subversive. The temple complex doesn't have to be the way it is. I went in there and cleared it. Why? Because it begins like that. It begins political. It begins with someone agitating. It begins with someone expending energy. It starts there. But this whole thing can be different so that people can find God, so that the poor aren't marginalized. Like, it starts small, but this tree can bear fruit. The tree, the fig tree here, is symbolic of the nation of Israel. And so all throughout these next couple chapters, it's the nation of Israel that has not borne fruit, the fruit of justice and righteousness. And so Jesus is cursing the fig tree, which is symbolic as he's cursing all of Israel and saying, I'm going to tear this whole thing down and I'm going to start it over again. We're going to talk about that next Sunday as Jesus creates a new way in his own body that we can find God. But, but Jesus is saying, I envision, I imagine, I have a dream that it'll be very different and I'm coming into this town small on a donkey. But it begins there because I'm doing this in faith, because we don't have to accept the status quo. We don't have to let the, the, the Roman Judeo temple complex establishment dictate to us reality. People keep asking me why I'm not writing about um, politics on social media. First off, has it changed anything what anyone has said on social media about politics right now? That's the first reason. I'm not writing on politics. Second reason is I'm writing a book on some of this stuff. I'd much rather try and give my better thought than just my flash opinions to, to writing some things. Thirdly, I'm not looking for a political savior in the American political system to somehow give to me the ability to live the right kind of way or to pull together the right kind of community that understands the right way to be human. I'm not, I'm not gonna get caught up in this thing that we do every four years that there's somehow gonna be a savior that's gonna come politically in America. I don't think it's ever gonna come there. 
When was the last time the best American ever showed up on a ballot? Seriously. And so I, I'm not going to get caught up in that. I, I, I'm not telling you your politics is right or wrong. I'm saying the whole of that is not where your salvation lies. And if you get caught up in that, then you don't stand outside of it and question it in the first place or begin to take the, the steps necessary to say, I am a part, a small part, the beginning part of a different kind of, of living that rejects empire and says, I choose the kingdom of God rather than the way of this world. And this, this passage is hopelessly political. Jesus goes on and then he tells this parable of the two sons and, he, and he's basically judging the Pharisees. And then he tells the parable of the tenants and he, and he tells this parable and he basically says, um, the Pharisees and the leaders are, are, gonna, are gonna go to hell. And he says, you know what? The tax collectors and the prostitutes are gonna come in. And, and then we see he goes over, talks about taxes. I don't care about the taxes. Forget the political system of, of what's going on. You guys are looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. The same thing was going on in Jesus' day. And then he gets to chapter 23, and he goes off for two chapters. Woe to you, all these woes. And he's talking about brood of vipers and snakes and, and damning the teachers, the pastors, the Pharisees, the leaders, um, the leaders, the, the, the Sadducees, the, 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 the political. He basically doesn't spare anybody. He goes off on everybody. And he's undercutting their authority to lead. He's saying to the whole wide world, they don't have authority to lead. Not only is he, is he undercutting their political authority, but then he's saying they're going to go to hell. In other words, they think they have all the right answers spiritually or religiously, but, but strangely enough, they're actually completely on the outside from God. And so these religious leaders, these, these teachers, these pastors, these political leaders, what are they thinking when Jesus is saying all this? He's basically telling the mob that they don't have any ground to stand on. What do you do when you have power and someone is challenging you to the masses in that kind of a way? You kill them. You kill them. This passage freaked me out so much yesterday. I just thought all I was going to do is going to come in and just vomit all over Antioch. All over you. You're Antioch. Um, I didn't want to do that. So, I mean, I called everybody. I started by calling Pete. Pete never answers. So then I went on to calling Gary Brashears. So I talked to Gary Brashears because Gary Brashears always answers. Pete, be like your mentor. Um, just kidding. Uh, so Gary Brashears, beautiful human being, 35 years teaching theology over at Western Seminary, but has been very gracious to me to always pick up the phone. So we talk for 45 minutes. And then I call Ed Underwood, my other mentor. And I, I'm processing through those guys, saying, I want what comes out of me to come not from my immature self, but from my mature self. But the struggle was this. So Gary, this passage of Jesus coming into Jerusalem is hopelessly political. It's spiritual too. Look, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy, right? Um, but he was doing that all the time. 
Everywhere Jesus went, he was healing people. He was talking about the kingdom of God. He was, he was saying, as it is written. I mean, Jesus is always being spiritual. As he comes into this city, he's being hopelessly political too. The word political comes from the Greek polis, which is just city. We're talking about city life. The interesting thing we do with scripture is so much of it is written in the country. It's rural, it's sheep, it's walking around with staffs and it's grass and it's dirt roads and it's planting seeds and it's harvesting and it's, and it's grapevines. So much of scripture is, is written from this kind of rural sense that we have a really hard time uh, in modern times having a theology of the city because much of our life is lived in the city, but we have examples we have examples from Sodom and Gomorrah. If there was just one righteous person out of 10, I would save this city. What do we need in Bend? We just need one righteous person out of 10. God would bless this city. Um, Jerusalem, a big city. We, we, see, we, we see city theology coming into play here with economics and the poor or the marginalized. We, we have a theology of city, but we don't, we don't think about it much. As Jesus moves from the countryside, he comes to the city, he's now in the polis, and he's being hopelessly political. He's not being passive at all. So Gary, how do I not go in and just be hopelessly political and tell everyone we're getting it all wrong? What's more than that, I'm the, ba I'm, I'm the bad guy. People like me, I'm a pastor. I, I make my living, I do, I do, this, I do this for a living. And in, in, in this, I'm the Pharisee. Gary, like, should I even be a pastor? What am I even doing? I've been doing this for 10 years, should I just go do something else and then come back to it like some other point in life? Or what should I even be doing, Gary? Like, I. I how can I teach this honestly um, when I'm questioning whether I'm part of the target of, of, of Jesus' own words? Or if, if I'm willing to be if I'm willing to be honest enough that I have to put myself in that place. By the way, we're gonna go late today. Um, if you, and, and, uh, so if you need, I'm, ser I'm dead serious. I, I got two hours of sleep. We're gonna go late. I'm not done. If you... If you need to get kids, you go get kids, whatever it is. If you need to stretch out, whatever, just get comfortable. Um, we have this strange thing that we do as Americans. I think we do it part of human nature. But we think that our heroes would always like us. We think our heroes or celebrities, if we, if, if we were around them, they would all, always like us that we would be friends with them. Um, I learned a hard lesson when I was a, a boy. My hero was George Brett. George Brett was third baseman for the Royals. I had all of his baseball cards. And my grandpa, my grandpa was a, a huge baseball fan, loved the Dodgers. He actually retired and then worked as an usher at, the Dodger, at Dodger Stadium. Um, uh, one of my heroes, simple man, simple faith, beautiful life, when they talk about the greatest generation, like this was my grandpa, my grandpa Howie. Like he, he modeled that, right? So he took me to a game where the Royals were playing, knew I loved George Brett, took me there two hours early. I got by the third base line, had my, my uh, ball card that I wanted autographed. They were doing warm-ups. And, and so for an hour and a half, I stood there as a kid 
um, trying to get George Brett's attention. And then eventually a ball gets by, they're kind of throwing it back and forth, and it rolls right up right where I'm, I'm at. And George Brett trots over, and I hold out my card. Mr. Brett, I'm your biggest fan. Would you please sign my card? He never even made eye contact with me. Never even made eye contact with me. I threw that card in the trash as I left the stadium that day. I just remember being so hurt. My hero did not care about me. Um, it's true of you too. I don't care who you think would like you, they probably wouldn't. <laughs> You're not that important, right? Um, we, here's how this gets really twisted though. We all think that if Jesus walked in the room right now, all he'd be doing is showering us with his affection. And that might be true. In fact, if you are really down and out and you think there's nothing good in you and you're desperate, we, we don't always have tax collectors and prostitutes, but we have people that feel like they're stigmatized. We have people that feel like they're dirty. We have people that feel like they don't belong. We have people that are desperate. And if that's you, there's, there's a very good chance based on this passage that we're reading from, or if you're a kid, that, that Jesus would shower you with his affection and that he would comfort you. To the rest of us, we have to ask ourselves the question, the very real question, am, is it possible <clears throat> that I would be on the receiving end of Jesus' correction? That, that I'm not already right now in my life lockstep with where Jesus is or would, would, would be. Because you see, we, we join Jesus, we become disciples of Jesus, we're in Christ, we become a, a part of the body of Christ. That If we're gonna claim to be Christians or think that we have the right religious answers or that we, we somehow are getting it right, if we're gonna claim that we're, we're not in need of correction, then we have to be lined up with where Jesus would be at. And, and the question that I think this passage makes us have to ask ourselves is, is that true of me? <clears throat> Am I lined up? I mean, totally lined up with where Jesus would be. And if not, there's a very good chance that if my celebrity or my savior walked in, that, that he might have words, very strong words of correction for me. You see, we do this moralistic game and this decision-based salvation game, which we take one or two or 10 of a million possible sins and we say to ourselves, I don't do those things. I don't kill people, I don't rob from them. Sexually, morally, I'm, I'm, I'm straight-laced and I this and I that, I'm a good person. Not like those other people. And we miss the fact that 
that sin is a heart condition where we choose the darkness of life apart from God rather than the light of life with God. And we choose ourself and that our moralism can serve ourself and that our, our, our kind of choosing to distance ourselves from those people can actually serve the dark part of my heart, my own individualism. And, and my own going of my own way so that I have my own comfort and I'm working my own agenda and I'm protecting my kids from the world and, and that somehow I've got it all the way I want it. <clears throat> and we miss the fact that Jesus says, it's not just that you murder someone, but it's if you hate them. It's not just if you commit immorality, but it's these lustful desires that you have. Don't you realize that sin is an inclination towards darkness and self and that it exists in all of us and the broken people. If we go a couple more chapters over, the, the thief on the cross with Jesus, the truly broken people, they know they're bent. And they don't come forward with their moralism of look at the things I've got right. They come to Jesus like the thief on the cross and they have one thing that they say. They say, remember me. Jesus, when you come into paradise, when you come into heaven, remember me. The, the, the thief on the cross didn't say, Jesus, I accept you into my heart. Jesus, let me pray right now and I'm gonna pray the formula and I'm gonna pray it really well and then I'm gonna wait two minutes and if I'm still alive, I'll pray it a second time because you know, better that you pray that prayer twice and make sure it took than, than, than just once. We've got a really sick and twisted Christianity that we've lived up into in America that's not a biblical-based Christianity. The thief on the cross didn't say, I renounce this sin and this sin and this sin. The thief on the cross said, remember me in my darkness, in my, my inclination to self, in my bankruptcy, that I've got nothing that I can offer. I simply acknowledge that it will be only by you, Jesus, and only by your grace, only by you extending your saving hand to me, nothing of myself by which I can come in and be made right and, and exist with you. And so Jesus comes to Jerusalem and his politics is simply this, unless we are desperate enough that it is only Jesus, that Jesus would remember us, that somehow all of our other machinations, all of our other games, all of our other having the right spiritual answers, all of our putting our hope in political systems, all of us trying to manipulate life so that we're comfortable and our kids never do anything wrong, that all of this stuff we do, all of the doing of the athletics, all of the doing of the, the movies that we watch, all the doing of the things that we've created as our own way of, of American life that somehow makes us feel like we're ticking off the boxes. All of it, if we don't say simply to Jesus, remember me, I've got nothing. Remember me. And we're on the wrong side of the line. If, if I am a pastor, if I'm a, a husband and a father, if I'm a Christian man, and, and I'm simply willing to acknowledge that apart from Christ, I am nothing, and that to be with Christ is, is a cry that, that he would remember me. If that's all I have is Christ, then I can stand here in authenticity and, and I can keep doing this job. 
If we have any other religious formula, if we want any other Jesus, meek and mild and tame, that's going to show up and like our celebrity complex, just pat us on the head and tell us how good we're doing because our 10 things, our 10 boxes or whatever it might be, we've, we've kind of protected and guarded. Like if that's the Jesus we want or if that's the Jesus that, that we're going to crave to hear about, you know, most sermons, every sermon I've ever heard is what I said to Gary Brashears. That's what I said at Underwood. Every sermon I've ever heard wraps itself up. It resolves Here's the point of the sermon. Here's the takeaway. Here's the application. I said, this passage is destructively political and disruptive, and it doesn't resolve. So what do I do with that? Ed's comment to me was, Gary's comment was, that's why I take your phone calls on Saturdays. Um, I'm glad you're asking those questions. Ed's was, hey, this is where evangelicals are at a miss because we don't have liturgy or we don't have the Catholic calendar. Ed says, there's something about going through Holy Week, Palm Sunday, and then the days of, the, of, of that week, and then you get to um, Good Friday, which is dark, and that we don't bring in the resurrection at any point. The resurrection doesn't show up yet. It wasn't there for the disciples And as we go through Holy Week, it's not there for us either. We go through all the weird emotions, all the weird tensions, the unresolved stuff. Like, Jesus, what do we do with you cursing? What do we do with all this? Jesus, what do we do with you dying and leaving us in that kind of weakness and that frailty? What do we do with this? What do we do with this? So that when we get to Easter, there's resolve. That our only hope is in Christ and that we would, we would share in the resurrection that he is the first fruits of. And so I, I don't want to wrap this. I want to say that Jesus is not tame. That we don't package him up. He might not pat us on the head. He might not pat me on the head. But the beauty of this whole thing is when we are at our worst or our weakest or our most helpless or our most dependent, we can cry out and say, Jesus, remember me. That's the foundation to our salvation, to our relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Father, spare us from the temptation to put you in a box, to make you into our own image. Spare us from the different ways in which we always paint ourselves as the good guy in the story and we're never willing to see ourselves in the face of the Pharisees. Um, Help us to see you with eyes wide open. Give us the tender hearts that what we would find when we pray or put our hands out in front of you, that what we would find, we would be willing to receive. Your discipline, if need be, we'd, we'd be willing to receive. If it's your grace and we have a hard time receiving that, that we'd be willing to receive that. We wanna know you, not just a shadow of you, not just our own mental construct of you, not some kind of a weird systemized version of claiming you. It's to you we pray. In Christ's name, amen.